for March 10th, 2014. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 297. I'm going to write a bad story that people will hate. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Uh, I'm Matt Rather, and I'm here hosting with uh, the panel from Los Angeles. I, you know, I was thinking this week about our opening, our opening salvo of overthinking the the question of the week, and um, I was thinking that that it might be time to do away with it because uh, you know it's a, it's a mixed bag. When we had our audience survey around uh, the start of 2014 people people like it people don't like it it seems it seems to divide people um people people are polarized they have strong opinions there aren't there aren't a lot of people who are like meh or i could take it or leave it it's like i hate it it takes 20 minutes or else like you know that's the fu- <laughs> that's the funny part of the show that you know you all get to sort of play a play a group game and and you know d- generate some generate some material um and and it it struck me that since our podcasts have been pretty small recently and and you know the stalwarts of uh of Fenzel Lee and Rather um you you can basically expect those guys since it's only ever three guys on the podcast uh but no tonight i i was proven wrong that uh that uh we we might not need this game anymore because we have a huge panel tonight on this podcast uh, to talk about things. And uh, uh, full disclosure, we are not going to talk about the sequel to 300, or as we like to call it, 302. Uh, we are not going to address that for a couple of reasons. One is one is is that none of us actually saw it, so apparently we didn't have that much interest in it. Uh, another thing is that this is episode 297. Episode 300 is coming up. Uh, of the Overthinking It podcast. And if we were to cover the sequel to 300, what better place than episode 300? Well, you might say episode 302 could potentially be a better place uh, to cover it. But we're not, we're not talking about that. Um, but, but before we get to our actual topic, we want to uh, doff our helm in the direction of 300 um, and uh, ask a 300-themed question. In the tradition of uh, This is Sparta, what extremely basic fact, almost tautological statement, uh, could you make to someone before you kick them into a bottomless pit? If you were in that position, what would you like to inform? What self-evident fact would you like to inform someone of before dispatching them to meet their maker? All right. Let's see if I'm up to the alphabetical order on this one. I think A comes before B. First in the alphabet. Drink. Because it's not Peter Fenzel. It is Ben Adams. Hey, Matt, it's a high degree of difficulty with, with five names. You, you pulled it off. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Yeah, I probably would not pass the new SAT that they have now that, you know, has all the revised things. And you have to like, yeah, actually... the first question is, did you see 300 too? <laughs> and if you say yes, then you get 200 points. <laughs> 300 points. <laughs> and two, 302 points. <laughs> 
So I I don't know if this is quite tautological enough, but uh, I'm going to go with it anyway. Since uh, you know I'm uh, I'm in law school, I'm training to be a lawyer, and uh, the, the only real real reason I can imagine like kicking someone into a bottomless pit is if uh, you know for some reason we change our courtroom procedure and I just have to uh, I'm a judge and have to kick someone into the pit in the center of my courtroom, screaming, "You are out of order." <laughs> 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 That's nice. I like that. <laughs> should are you are should you should we start lobbying for courthouses with giant bottomless pits in the middle of them without revealing our reason in the hopes that this will someday come to pass and Ben can uh, advance his legal career to the point where this dream could come true? Well, it, it, you know, in Game of Thrones, they've got the uh, the sky court or whatever it is with the giant pit in the middle. So I guess that's pretty close. Yeah, the moon door. Yep. Yeah, that's sky nice, yeah. Make. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, make him fly. Make the little man fly. <laughs> um, spoilers. Uh, For the ex- first season of Game of Thrones, like the fifth episode that came out <laughs> years ago. Jeez. Anyway, sorry. Well, that's, I mean, uh, actually getting to the point of what we're going to talk about on the podcast tonight. That's like, there, there is what, what the statute of limitations is for spoiler alerts is, uh, is an open question. Uh, I think. All right, second in the alphabet. I think I can do this, guys. Drink again because it's not Peter Fenzel. It's Matt Belinky. Uh, yeah, it, it is always a disconcerting experience when I'm not oh. first. Uh, but it gave me time to think about uh, the pit, and I sort of called up an image of it, and then I realized for the first time. That and correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe I just don't understand. Maybe I haven't played enough SimCity. But is there a, a possible reason why that pit is there besides to kick people into? Uh, it's a cistern. And is okay. Here's here's the thing. There there are two options. Either either it's some sort of a, a like a, a well, right? There's some sort of it's for water. In which case, if you were the king of that society, the last thing you want to do is kick a bunch <laughs> of dudes into the the clean water supply for your entire city state, right? Um, and then the other alternative is that like it is solely there, and so that you may kick people into it, which is cra- and, and that's a terrible idea as well because obviously it's gonna get it's gonna get stinky. Right, it's an open air. It's an open air uh, corpse pit, basically what it is, and it's just nobody. Nobody wants that there in the apparently in the center of town, in the dead center of town. So we just it really and it's and it's a testament to probably how cool it looks that nobody watching the movie is just like, what's that giant bottomless pit doing in the middle of town where it's perfect to kick people into. Um, although honestly, Frank Miller is—he is, is seems like the kind of guy who would have done, who would have done some research. Um, I mean, I, I hesitate to be like you know historical accuracy because obviously he depicted his Spartans fighting basically naked, uh, which I'm almost positive is not in fact the the case. I'm pretty sure they wore some sort of armor. Um, but nevertheless, I'd, I'd almost believe that like at some point uh, he he came upon a reference to a, a corpse kicking pit in the ancient city state of Sparta. Um, so, so, um, so I would, I would, I, I, I guess I would, uh, right, right before I kick the guy in there, I would just like scream, like, you know, like, like check the footnotes, which would be, <laughs> which is more of a, more of a reference for the, for the people reading my graphic novel and, or watching the, I guess if it was a, it was a movie, I'd be like, like check the special features for the historical accuracy of the bottomless pit, <laughs> but that doesn't, it lacks some of its punch. 
So yours would be like a non-diegetic statement. Yes, because, because out of respect for the viewer who is like, what is, that, what is that meant to be? Is it like a functional thing in the city? Is it merely there to to execute people? Were the Spartans – because I would think that like they wouldn't have a lot of need for executing people because they're, they're a very disciplined society. So that unless somebody – like a messenger comes from the outside and talks trash to the king, like how often do they have to kick somebody into that pit? Yeah, I, I don't mean to poop into the cistern of your point here. Okay, go on. <laughs> but um, I feel like if if you have people engaging with the the factual accuracy of the movie on that level, you've really failed as a storyteller, right? Because if it, there's a, there's a there's a dearth of awesomeness, right? If so, if someone has the the mental space to wonder about the uh, about the you know the bottomless pit, I, I suppose. I mean, I guess that's that's an interesting point, which is that the, your your skill as a storyteller, or success as a storyteller, can be measured by the by the massive gaps in logic that that your audience is ready to assume. Yeah, the and crap was, the crap that you can get away with. Yeah, and I always I always point to the the submarine scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is one of those scenes. It really it makes no logical sense that that Indiana Jones at some point that the Nazis have taken the Ark, they've taken it onto a submarine, um, and he swims over to the submarine and gets on top, and then there's a montage of like the the people inside the submarine doing doing Nazi submarine operating things and a map sequence, and the next time you see him, he is sort of like he's he's now in the Nazi base, and the only logical assumption is that. Somehow he's actually gotten into the Nazi summer, the 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 uh, notoriously cramped quarters of a World War II submarine, and hidden inside a barrel, uh, sort of like a solid snake style. Can you get um, Can you get into a submarine from the outside if no one like opens a hatch to let you in? Well, but that's that's my point, and the and the fact is nobody watching Raiders of the Lost Ark is like, wait, how did he get to the island? Was he inside the sub? And and you could you could argue that that is a testament to the fact that uh, Steven Spielberg knows what he's doing. That the submarine thing was, and of course we we found out uh, later. We we did a very early research project on overthinking it, and it turns out that originally the sequence had the, the submarine does not go fully underwater, and it it ends up uh, sort of skimming the surface with the periscope up, and he actually sort of like ties himself to the periscope and there was there was actually a sequence i think they filmed some of it with uh harrison ford sort of being dragged through the ocean tied to the periscope of the thing um and they decided no they decided to look silly here they just didn't have time <laughs> it went um, into a now little used bucket called things too stupid for george lucas <laughs> with the ark of the covenant and then also the footage of the of the submarine uh the submarine uh, periscope scene. Uh, okay, Pete Fenzel, you're next. What's what's in what's in your bucket? What's in my what's bucket? Or bucket? <laughs> uh, I think I, I keep I keep wanting to go in different directions with it. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind, my favorite tautology. Uh, is is from the NES video game Baseball Stars. Uh, I don't know if you, did anybody on this podcast ever play Baseball Stars. Uh, no? On NES. Okay. On NES. Was that yes, different was... from the regular baseball game where you always bunt? 
<laughs> yes, it was. So Baseball Stars for the NES was one of the first video games, at least that I ever played, that put you in the role of the general manager of the team who had a salary to pay and could like hire and fire players. And you would pay players, you know, you, you could spend a lot of money to hire a, a star, right, who had like big stats. You could spend a medium amount of money to hire a veteran who had medium stats and not a lot of potential to improve. Or you can spend a little bit of money to hire a rookie and then pay them a lot of money over time to improve their stats, right? And there were teams that were tough to beat. And then there were teams that were, there was a team called the Lovely Ladies who were very prestigious and always draw big crowds, but weren't all that hard to defeat. And so you would play the Lovely Ladies over and over again in these big, like sort of Harlem Globetrotter-esque exhibition matches. (laughs) And then you would get all the money that you wanted to build the team that you wanted. But there was like a, a team that was like Freddy and Jason, and they, just the names is all the color that there is. But anyway, there were two secret codes that you could put in uh, that would get you awesome stuff in Baseball Stars. And the characteristics of two of these codes, of these two codes that was that were interesting, is that you'd input the button combinations or whatever, and then a query would come up that would ask you a question, and you had to put in a specific answer. And the first question was. Um, well, one of the questions, the second question was, what is a wren, W-R-E-N? And the answer was a bird. And if you put in a bird, then you would get like a bazillion dollars or whatever. And another one was, when isn't it? And the answer was, when it is. Right? Uh, you had to be able to say that. These are, of course, things that only Nintendo Power subscribers who have their little... I'll ask another question that hopefully gets a more enthusiastic answer. Who else had the 50-issue Nintendo Power commemorative pin for subscribing to all 50 first issues of Nintendo Power? I had the 100-issue pin, and literally <laughs> literally the day I received it in the mail is when I canceled my subscription. <laughs> Out of, like, shame. Maybe it was... Did they do a pin for 50, or was it only a pin for 100? I'm sure I was there for a long time. I remember uh, and it was bi-monthly at first, which was, like, as in, like, twi- once every two months. So, so you're saying you're saying you subscribed well into college? Uh, oh, gosh. Probably not. I don't know. Maybe. That's possible. It's possible it was waiting for me when I got home. I know it was around Zelda time, like Ocarina of Time, that I finally, like, kicked out. But anyway, I was going to say that when I kicked the guy, I would say, when isn't it? When it is! And kick him, and he'd go into the cistern. But none of you got the joke, and none of the listeners are getting the joke, so the guy probably wouldn't get the joke either. And that's really depressing, because what's the point of a one-liner if the guy that you're delivering it to doesn't understand it? So I guess I could say, like, the Konami code. Like, I go, like, up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, BA, start! And I kick him, but that feels forced. I think I just have to yell, language is a construction! And I would kick him. (laughs) (laughs) And it would be his representative present my futile attempts to get him to comprehend my various jokes and, and the, the gulf between us, me being Spartan and him being Persian, in terms of our readership reference and mutual understanding, would be so gaping and bottomless that he would fall into it and I would stare <laughs> down at him triumphantly, <laughs> I suppose. Uh, excellent. The the it really is going to be twenty minutes for the for the question. <laughs> Sorry, no, 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 it's not it's not you, Pete, it's me. But, no, the worst thing is I feel like I've told the Baseball Stars story before on the podcast, and nobody got it then either, and I feel like a terrible human being. You know what? So you move on to somebody else. After th- after 300 podcasts, you're, you know, I'm, I'm not a guy to throw stones for repeating a story more than once. Time is a flat circle, man. Time is a flat circle. <laughs> um, the, all right, let me just uh, wipe the sweat off these scars around the whole bottom half of my face and go on to Mark Lee. Okay, so the ice hockey game for Nintendo, when you read Nintendo... No, 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 no. I'm not going there. Not going there. All right. So a uh, long-time listener of this podcast will know that for many years, I've worked in and around municipal government. 
And um, this is of interest to me because, uh, you know, we realize that Sparta is a city-state with its own set of customs and rules and culture and things like that, right? Which is why it's um, important and obvious when the dude kicks the other guy and says, this is Sparta, because Sparta is special and has fun stuff going on inside of there. So, uh, as someone who likes bureaucracy and city government and efficiency, I'd like to imagine a special city-state where it's really important where everybody's like a really competent technocrat and understands uh, you know, how to effective ways to run a city and ways to analyze data and things like that. And then some simpleton comes along. He doesn't get it. He offends the locals. And I kick him into a pit. And this is what I tell him. Correlation does not equal causation. <laughs> So would he fall into the pit because you kicked him? <laughs> we can't really jump to that conclusion there. I mean, it is one one of several causal factors, right? I mean, gravity. <laughs> right. But if you're looking for a real root cause, right, it's the fact that he entered my special city state of technocrats in the first place <laughs> without understanding all the rules. Right, I suppose. I mean, I suppose that at a certain level, it's because he was born. You know, the the I don't know the 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 Aristotle typology of causes seems to me to be momentarily useful here. Right, like the 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 final cause um, and the proximate cause are different. I think in this case. I mean, then you get into a whole nature versus nurture debate, and we got to talk about the role of institutions in people's lives as well. That's another thing. If, if Ryan Sheely were here on this podcast like his thing i think before kicking something down the pit would be institutions yeah, sadly sadly when you pull back the ralsian veil of ignorance there's a giant cistern that's full of the dead bodies of persian messengers so <laughs> just close the close the veil and move on um all right i think i am the last uh, i think i'm the last one to go i I, I like all of your answers, but they're, they're, many of them are opinions, um, and, uh, and, and they don't have the same kind of, the same kind of self-evident emptiness that This Is Sparta has, right? Like, I suppose, I suppose in saying This Is Sparta, what, what he's saying, like, Toto, you're not in Persia anymore. I suppose that that's the, the, the actual force of that statement. But, like, This Is Sparta, um, of course it's Sparta. It's, it's like saying, you know, I don't know, the sky is blue or, you know, um, a, great, uh, a great cause of the night is lack of the sun or something. Um, it's self-evident. And my favorite self-evident statement that you hear all the time in everyday speech um, is, and I'm sure I've talked about this on the podcast before, is I'm just saying you know, <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, that's where I thought you were going with it. <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's that's uh that's one of of uh, like three three things uh, that I've said to Pete that have pissed him off in his life, right? Like, <laughs> it is what it is. Sooner is better than later. And maybe, and I forget what the third, what the third one is. But, uh, you know, thing, I think it was, no, I didn't see the Riddick movie. Or <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I'm just, I'm just saying, which when someone is, is saying that to you, it's, um, it's, precisely true and nothing more right it's a statement that's empty of informational content uh because it it is the precondition uh right for its own um truth value you know i'm just saying 
so that's that's what I would do, right? Like uh got the got the guy there. Says, I'm just kicking <laughs> and kick him into the and kick him into the into the giant cistern where he can poison the rainwater and you know, I don't know, we can all drink it and make us make us stronger Spartans, I suppose. Am I the only one concerned about this? I don't understand <laughs> hygiene in the way that we do, right? Hey, yeah, I mean, this was this was before the Romans built the aqueduct, right? Yeah, this, if you're in the playing the the game Civilization, you haven't discovered the technological advances that allow you to construct the aqueduct. I really hope there's a civilization in Civilization that just starts with giant pits to kick people into, and that's like their main initial technology, and then they have to branch out from there. What comes from after that? It's really not animal husbandry. Ghosts would just fall in the pit, and it's probably yeah. not, I guess, masonry, because you use that, you reverse engineer how to build things out of bricks from the way that the bottomless pit was built out of bricks, and you Does decide that you can build things above the ground. Yeah, Ben? Does it come before or after ceremonial burial in the tech tree? I guess it has to come first because the guy has to get underground first, and then they have to cover it up. <laughs> See, it also it also occurs to me that like you know, isn't Sparta you know historically the, the sort of Sparta versus Athens division was like you know Athens is all about sort of like rationality and 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 logic and democracy, and Sparta is all about kicking people into pits. And and and, so and like, taking young boys as as lovers also don't forget about no, that. That's Athens. That's not places. No, that, that's what he was saying. Ra- rationality and and uh, yeah, right. rationality but and pederasty. Like, can't you imagine like a version where like three hundred takes place in Athens and it's like this is Athens, which is why I'm not going to kick you to our sister because Aristotle has proven me. They, I, I guess maybe they, they don't they don't have that. They don't have germ theory in in Athens <laughs> for for just everything they do have. Before we move on from this, can we just be a little bit more honest for a moment to the source material? Because he's not, <laughs> it's not really a tautology, because he's responding to the statement, this is madness, right? And he's offering the counterstatement, this is Sparta, right? So there's a little bit more semantic content than just, you know, you're not in, you're not in Persia anymore. There's also this idea that the messenger has come to this place with an understanding of certain types of behavior being normalized and other sorts of behavior being pathologized, right? Which is, of course, entirely anachronistic, but whatever. It doesn't matter. But it's like, yeah, thinking in this way against the will of the Persian emperor is, is like so raw against the expectation of the people who slavishly follow the Persian emperor, right? It's so against what they would think that they, this guy must be mentally ill, right, to believe that he can defy. And he says, no, this is Sparta, which is recontextualizing and reframing this, this behavior that's been deemed unacceptable as something that we sort of believe in and think is awesome. So it's a, self, a mutually identifying social foundational idea, um, which really means that he's basically it's a lot like you know we don't it's 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 very analogous to um i know they don't taste like apples but we like them like they just do right like we don't taste it's sort of like like you know what i mean i'm not quoting that correctly because it's not as punchy but it's definitely like i think what's one of the reasons why 300 connects so well with adolescence is that this idea that it's like the thing that you think is wrong about me is the thing that me and my friends all share and makes us awesome right um and of course, it's not really arguing against the idea that it's wrong or bad. It's sort of just taking a certain amount of pride in it as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, which I guess means that there's a tacit appreciation of the authority of the parental figure at the same time as the individuation and rebellion and all that stuff. Yeah, and I mean, I always, I always saw 300 as basically an episode of Friday Night Lights by other means. <laughs> because, like, it clearly is, it's a movie that was designed so that, like, 
uh, like high school sports teams will have something to watch as a team the night before the big match. Um, you know, and it's it's definitely like it, uh, we must protect this house type movie, right? And and it, it definitely seems like like you know uh, you you might as you might as well like a new person who moved to Dillon, uh, Texas, was just like, wait, your whole society is based on our football? That's madness. He's like, hey, it's just Texas football, baby. <laughs> Texas forever, Sparta forever. Kick into a, a, a corral full of longhorn cattle. <laughs> right, and you let yeah, and you land on the uh, on the pointy bit. <laughs> you sticking him with the pointy end? <laughs> Stick him with the pointy end. So is this the place where we have to segue to our main topic, Matt? Since we said we wouldn't talk about three hundred, and then yeah. we sort of talked about three hundred for Abs- twenty minutes. Yeah, absolutely. We have to. We have, it's important that we segue to our main main topic. I don't know what's on your mind, Pete. Well, in speaking of delayed, <laughs> delaying for the audience the thing that they actually want to find out, <laughs> I wanted to talk. So tonight is the season finale. We're recording this on Sunday night. It's the season finale of True Detective. Now, we're not going to talk about anything spoilery about True Detective. And this is what we're doing is we're going to use this event to springboard into kind of a broader conversation so everyone can participate. I know from the general reception of my RoboCop True Detective article, which was very funny, uh, that in fact, not a lot of you will watch True Detective, despite it being an excellent show. So not- <laughs> I, I mean, Pete, art- article, you know, should, yeah, we, should, we, call- parody. Yeah, should we Should we say listicle? It was a listicle. It was clearly it was clearly a, an ironic listicle. Um, but at any rate, I know not all of you watch True Detective, so we're not going to talk about True Detective, but we're going to talk about something that True Detective inspired, which is a general conversation about shows, specifically TV shows, but also like book series, movie series, where you get a community around the show that theorizes and speculates about what's going to happen in the show in a very intent and detail-driven sort of way. And the kinds of discussions that happen where people are taking free freeze frames, and, and, and it, it's happening in kind of two mechanisms, right? There's one mechanism where you're trying to figure out what happens next in the plot from sort of a suspense and satisfaction standpoint, like guess the next event that happens in the story. And then the other side of it is interpretive, where it's about foreshadowing and symbolism, and it's an act of kind of consuming and appreciating and understanding the story through this kind of speculative theorizing, which can often go into, I love the term tinfoil, Oil, uh, which is often used for the various crazy theories, right? Into tinfoil territory, tinfoil hat territory of like, you know, Varys is a mermaid or whatever, you know, like, uh, and that's a random Game of Thrones reference. We will try not to spoil anything crazy, anything major in this conversation, uh, just to have the general discussion of it. But, um, but before I, I hand it off to everybody else, because I, again, but suspense is killing me, uh, I wanted to talk about quickly what Nick Pizzolatto, the founder of True Detective, said about all the people on the internet who are speculating all of these crazy theories about what might happen in the story of True Detective. Who's the murderer? What about the detectives? What's the secrets? What's the, what are all the occult references referencing? And he, said, uh, and he said this in an interview with the Daily Beast. He said, I've enjoyed reading people theorize about what's going to happen because it's a sign that you're connecting. But I'm also sort of surprised by how far afield they're getting. Like, why do you think we're tricking you? It's because you've been abused as an audience for more than 20 years. I cannot think of anything more insulting as an audience than to go through eight weeks, eight hours with these people, and then to be told it was a lie. That what you were seeing wasn't really what was happening. The show is not trying to outsmart you. 
right? Uh, and, and I think that that's kind of huge uh, relative to a lot of other shows, which are probably doing just that or creating the experience of just that. I mean, well, guys, what do you think about? I've sort of opened the topic with a lot of information, but what springs to mind in this sort of general discussion? Like, what shows do you, does this make you think of? Uh, what what sort of conversations you've had does it remind you of? Well, we talked on this podcast a lot about the J.J. Abrams mystery box style of storytelling, right? And particularly Matt Belinke, I know, is not a fan of this. Is that correct, Matt? Yeah, I, I, I definitely feel like Lost... It, it seemed like Lost was, was in war with its audience, right? Like, <laughs> it's, it's trying to... It's it's not trying to entertain you. It's it's trying to beat you into submission and prove that it's better than new. Um, I don't. I, th- that's probably unfair because look, I, I did watch some of Lost and I enjoyed some of Lost, but it seemed like at a certain point, the sort of the the the, the fun of, um, of 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 creating this sort of mystery that the audience had to solve became sort of an obligation. And I, I think that like nobody was probably more sick of living up to their own hype than the, than the people working on Lost, right? Than J.J. Abrams and the writers, because they 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 literally painted themselves into not literally, but they figuratively painted <laughs> themselves into a corner. Although, for all I know, maybe that's literally the writers' room that they were busy. They're like, you know what? While we while we come up with ideas for for season four, let's repaint the writers' room. Let's paint the floor. Let's ideas. paint the floor of the white writers' room. <laughs> you know, what you don't see these days a lot is a good painted floor. You know. <laughs> so I mean, like yeah, we talked about this before. I mean, you know, we've pinned this down to a recent trend, and I hung out a lot on J.J. Abrams and the show Lost, which dates back to uh, the mid the mid aughts, right? Um, but it's interesting that this guy. Uh, references a time frame of more than 20 years, right? You've been abused as an audience for more than 20 years. Uh, I'm trying to figure out what exactly he's referring to, right? That, that was happening in the 90s. Uh, it might be that. I mean, in 1994, the top movie uh, at the U.S. box office was Forrest Gump. And I know that was really uh, a series of mysteries enclosed within other mysteries enclosed <laughs> within chocolate boxes. So maybe that's what he's talking about. Forrest contains multitudes, yes. Um, he specifically in the interview was talking about The Sixth Sense, which, of course, was more 15 years ago than 20 years ago. Um, I mean, that's the reference. Is then it goes on to say, so this show is not the sixth sense. He's like, no, I knew the guy was dead as soon as he showed up after being shot in the gut in the second close. It was the same thing with the. He also references the usual suspects. He doesn't like the usual suspects. He says, uh, which I guess we don't want to spoil what happens in the usual suspects. So maybe we just leave it like that. Yeah, but but the, suffice the, it to say, so yeah, suffice it to say that there's a there's a surprise and it sort of changes the way you look at the movie. Yeah, yeah, and it's okay. a surprise that happens at the end of the movie and recontextualizes everything that's happened previously up until this point well i want i want to i want to go i i like true detective a lot and i i think i'm a fan of its creator but uh i i think he's wrong about the usual suspects right like i think the ending of the usual suspects is uh is awesome in fact does not suck and in fact is awesome Elaborate. <laughs> well, look, what, what we're talking about is is sort of like establishing expectations and then and then thwarting them, right? We're talking about sort of the delicate sort of game of engendering expectations in order to satisfy them or in order to thwart them. And in in the case of the usual suspects, I think that that uh, what you find out actually adds richness to your experience rather than rather than 
uh, taking away richness from your experience rather than like being the ending of St. Elsewhere. You know what I mean? Where, where it's like, well, none of it, none of it actually, none of it actually mattered. Right. There, there are sort of two ways to do it. One is none of it actually mattered. It's all in a snow globe and the, uh, no spoilers. <laughs> and the, the, uh, <laughs> and the other is, um, oh no, it actually, it matters more though. What you were, what you were seeing wasn't what you thought you were seeing uh, at the time you actually could go back through and sort of real and sort of understand what uh you know what was going on like it's an invitation to to rewatch the movie i suppose knowing knowing what you know now yeah i mean the other show that i think of that's more contemporary uh, is Battlestar Galactica for this? Because it had a big ending that tried to recontextualize everything and say, oh, this has all mattered in a certain way, but it's a totally different way than what you expect. Um, and it's interesting because the original Battlestar Galactica and the remake of Battlestar Galactica both did this, uh, but they did it in totally different ways. And the first one, I felt like the first one is sort of more clever. Um, and that one I feel, I feel comfortable spoiling because that show ended like a bazillion years ago <laughs> and, uh, you're not going to watch it. And you're also not going to watch the spinoff show, which immediately announces, do you, but, but sidebar, haven't you, you guys actually watched even half an episode of uh, Battlestar 1980, whatever that show is called? Um, uh, no. Oh no. my goodness. <laughs> so if you're not familiar with the original Battlestar Galactica, um, Oh, Galactica 1980 is what it's is what the spinoff show is called, and it's the worst thing I've ever watched on television. I watched it on Netflix; it's absurdly wow. bad. Um, and it's it's so the original Battlestar Galactica it's it's this you know Mormon allegory of the lost tribe is out there, you know, and, and we're the refugees, and we're in this big spaceship, and we are fleeing this robot armada that has de- destroyed humanity except for our little lost tribe, and we are going to wander out in the wilderness, and we're going to search for this legendary place called Earth, right? And, and Earth is the lost tribe of humanity, and we'll find them, and we'll have a new place to settle and humanity will be able to fight back against the robots and the the spoiler at the end of the original Battlestar Galactica and I'm not going to spoil the new one is they find Earth and it's 1980 Right, like they get there, and it's the present. It's to them, it's the present day, and the big realization is, oh crud, these people are useless against the robots. Right, like they, they don't stand a chance. Does it explain um, how why why it's 1980? Was some some time travel involved, or is it just like uh, they like it's just like a whole other separate like planet of human civil and the whole category other category yeah. of human civilization. I mean, at, at this or, point okay. in Battlestar Galactica, you're not really going to be interested in the dialogue that's been written because it's really bad, but it's yeah, it's it's basically like the people have come from some sort of precursor civilization okay. that okay. was from far away, like the Lost Tribe of Israel in the Mormon story. Um, and the new Battlestar Galactica like confounds this and changes it and, and does all this weird stuff about the repeating of history and all this other nonsense. But then Battlestar Galactica 1980 is a show where it's like, now we have to live among the people in 1980. And mostly it's we have to raise our children. There's like a, ch- a bunch of children in a class who have to like live among people from 1980. But they have like weird superpowers because they're from the, the space people. Like they can jump really high under its gravity and they keep getting into mischief by jumping too high. I don't know. Never mind. I've gone down a rabbit hole, guys. <laughs> All I'm saying is that that that's that that was kind of that I kind of bought that twist because the, the idea of like oh like you went so far away and what you really found you were looking for home and when you found home it was home and it sort of acknowledges that this fantasy of a home that's greater than ourselves has some sort of hole in it, but I don't know. But but other but that sort of show contributes to it. I see how the usual suspects. 
um, it, it, it builds on it. It builds on what the story is about. Something on Lost, like Lost, it's pretty, it's pretty hostile to what's happening. Um, the, the community around Game of Thrones and Song of Ice and Fire, you know, is going crazy coming up with various theories around what's going to happen in the books, which are, of course, already several years ahead of the show. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's an interesting thing with the, t- <laughs> the TV show, uh, Ice and Fire, right? Is that the, um, that the 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 fandom of the TV show is kind of is kind of behind, right? And like we know everything that's going to happen, and so like the pleasure as as a person who reads the books, the pleasure of looking forward is like, wow, what are they going to do for for X or Y event? I'm really looking forward to that. You know, I really want to see the Battle of the Blackwater, or I want to see the 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 Orange Wedding, or I want to see the you know. <laughs> the Orange Julius. Yes. <laughs> no spoilers. No spoilers. We're being very so, good. No spoilers. No spoilers. Tyrion invents the orange julius and goes the only spoiler is the galactic 1980s the worst thing that's ever been on television anyway ben go ahead sorry so is that actually the 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 dichotomy between the game of thrones show and the game of thrones book raises i don't know an interesting kind of spectrum of theorizing because if you're if you only watch the show you're like theorizing about what's going to happen is a very different experience than for something like Lost, which is being made, you know, just for TV. Because, like, sure, you can be wondering all about what exciting things are going to be happening on Game of Thrones next season on the show. If you really want to find out, you can just go on Wikipedia and find out, for the most part. Um, which is very different from most TV shows like that, where that they haven't made it yet. And chances are nobody knows what's going to happen next season on uh, a, a show like... Uh, not True Detective because that one isn't isn't contemporaneous, but some other show with a lot of mythology. There's a good chance no one knows because the writers haven't decided what's going to happen. Yeah, like we don't and know so what's happening in 24 or Live Another Day in London. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so the, there's like a theorizing of what is what are the writers they haven't decided yet. There's the theorizing of what have the writers decided to do this season, and then there's something like Game of Thrones where it's like, well, what did they already decide to do? But I just haven't found out yet. Oh, that's interesting because it it. We, we, there are issues of intention in this sort of theorizing that become pretty pretty extreme, where, yes, you're sort of trying to guess the mind of the writer, but at the same time, oh, I think that there's even situations where an audience member will, will analyze elements of the show, determine from a- analyzing the elements of the show that they know what either is happening, was happening, something that hasn't been shown, some sort of twist that the story is likely to take. And then if the writer then sort of doesn't carry through with that particular twist, they could then be like upset or disappointed in the writer for not figuring out their own show. Right? <laughs> it's like, there's the question, there, I think there is a question of you know, the intent, you know, the author is dead in these things. I, I see these as acts of interpretation by the audience more than kind of guessing the mind of the writer. It's sort of like, this is, we are recreating the show for ourselves as we're watching it or as we're keeping up with it. <sighs> that is an interesting, that is an interesting question. It's not, you know, I don't know. I, I don't like, this gets into areas of sort of geek culture and, and sort of geek websites, a, a phrase I, I almost shudder to say, versus like overthinkingit.com and what, what I think our mission is. Um, which is a jock website, which hates nerds. Yeah, right. absolutely. <laughs> we'll kick sand in nerds, your face. Nerds. It's nerds. a... Uh, <laughs> And um, right, yeah, and so uh, yeah, if if they are Revenge of the Nerds, we're like Porkies, I guess. Uh, 
just a just wish we were porkies. Just a take. Pee the, pee the meatballs straight to video <laughs> sequel you want to see in the world. <laughs> uh, but um, uh, like I well no I'm I probably will alienate nerds if if I if I say what I think of their websites. But it it is an interesting question. Like to think sometimes do the do the creators of X pop culture property really understand what they have on their hands, right? Like, do they really understand what's good about the, the thing that they're doing? And I think that's a non trivial question and, and I'm not satisfied with the answer. Well, of course, of course they do. They made it up, you know, so-and-so is the creator of this thing and they, but, but like, uh, um, very, very often, uh, I you know you see a television show that does, doesn't understand what's good about the television show and doesn't give you more of what's good about the television show and insists on like having plot and character and things like this rather than you know I don't know rather than just more um, uh, more lifeguards running on the beach in slow motion, right? Yeah, Matt, Matt, I never thought of television in, in quite those terms. So you're saying like base, what Baywatch is an example. Uh, okay. No, I think in Baywatch they knew exactly what was good about their show. But <laughs> okay, so what is an example of a show that didn't know what was good about community? Uh, community, right? No, Sorry, I, I didn't. Well, <laughs> no, I don't think so. I mean, I think that I think that like I have a feeling that somewhere like Dan Harmon has like an obsessively detailed theory of what is good about Community that is done with like you know one sixty fourth scale miniatures, uh, you know hand painted lead miniatures. On a on a giant diorama that he's constructed in his in his garage somewhere. It's it's sort of community is the counterexample. Well, I just meant during the years that when Dan Harmon wasn't there, then the people who were running Community at the time. Of course, I didn't even watch Community. The, ga- the gas leak year. The gas. Is that what that's called? Season four. Yeah, with, with the absent <laughs> Dan Harmon. I'd also I would also maybe add that the first half of season one, where the show was still was trying to find its legs. But isn't that every television show? Like the first half of season one doesn't know what's good about it. Except for True Detective, that show is. Well, yeah, I mean, That's True Detective though isn't a season. It's isn't only a designed to be one season. Yeah, it's a show. It's an. <laughs> it's going to be an anthology series, right? If there's another year of True Detective, if there's another stretch of it, it's going to be a different story with different different actors. Yeah. It's it's like right. the Twilight Zone. It's not like yeah. you know. The first half of the first season of Perfect Strangers is the best part. Of the show. <laughs> and I actually think this is more of a. This more shows up in a second season. Like first season, you know, people kind of catch lightning in a bottle. And that, that's also kind of a self-selection problem. Like, if they don't know what's good about their show in the first season, the first season will just be bad and no one will ever hear of the show again. <laughs> so, but, like, something good. For whatever reason, the, the, the stars align and a show is good in the first season. And then a lot of times you see that second season slump because the writers maybe are still struggling to figure out which elements made it work and which elements were working against it. You know, what... what did sure, it succeed or, despite these elements, or did, did it succeed because of these elements? Let, let me give the example of Ally McBeal, right? Like, Ally McBeal was good because it was a farce, right? It was a bunch of weird people acting weird. And uh, in, in later seasons, it got, it got really sort of brooding and moody. Um, 
and a lot of other words with like the ooh phoneme in them, like um, duty and poopy and John Bon Jovi, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, and started to like ask ask a lot of questions about like, well, if you are a character in a farce and you are like a ridiculous human, can you really be happy? And like, what about what about the miserable day to day experience of going around being like a funny little person in 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 a farce? As though they were, you know, as though they were actual people and as though we actually care about that. And it's like, no, I don't, I don't care about that at all. I don't, I don't wonder if these people are happy. I don't wonder about the, the, like, the strange existential aspects of their lives. I want them to, to say funny things and have ridiculous court cases and, and make me laugh. That's what's good about this. Uh, you know, that's what's good about this show, right? Like, it, it feels like it, it, it feels like a, like a season four or five problem when um uh when television shows take a turn for the moody right yeah like when fraser lost his job <laughs> and, you know fraser <laughs> fraser crane lost his job and he's like what am i doing with myself and then niles is like you're coming to the coffee shop and he's like all right i'll go do that and then daphne is like oh i'm going to be over here and then i'm sorry i got distracted writing an episode of fraser I love Frasier. But Frasier is actually kind of an elegant solution to that problem, where by making the characters self-important psychologists, you can actually have them both farcically parodying themselves and asking questions about the themes and narrative, the meta-narratives of their own stories like in front of the audience. But not every show has that baked into the cake to quite the same degree as Frasier did. So Frasier's yeah. the best show, is all I'm saying. No, Gal- no, no. Galactic in nineteen eighties, the worst thing to ever be on television, and the best show ever made was Frasier. I mean uh, what you what you need in an hour long is like a you know, a moody speech in the fourth act about how, you know, when I was a kid I, I saw a guy get robbed at gunpoint and I was uh I was too young to do anything about it, and that's when I knew I, I was going to grow up to be a cat. So I'm giving you your Dawson's Creek background music for your big speech, man. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the show he's doing? No, I, no, was, I mean I felt like that's a show that did the kind of thing he's talking about, totally unironically, without this kind of failure that he's looking for. Yeah, right, like. Yeah, yeah, but it's a different kind of show because it's not a farce. Doesn't it's another. I mean, like, God, yeah, I can throw. I can like pretty much all of the, all of the USA Blue Sky uh, hour longs had this problem, right? Like Burn Notice season six and seven. It's like get back to having fun and blowing things up. Like have awesome missions, right? It's not a like a a, a, a sort of moody and like existentially nauseating, you know, expose of the the icy dark heart in the American intelligence community right or like how you know i don't know how our society is built on a foundation of lies get back to like good-looking people and explosions that's what i like about this show covert and affairs like how to yeah. blow things up with household you know uh, hardware supplies right yeah, it's yeah. Sli- you know it's a, a macgyver for our time you know i like uh i and i liked how the voiceover in in that show um Oh, what's his name? Jeffrey Donovan, I think his name is the the actor, good actor. Uh, but his voiceover always sounded pissed off. He always sounded like he was pissed off that he had to explain things to you. Like spies can make a walkie-talkie out of a stick of chewing gum, half a potato, and some smegma that you scrape off of the bottom of a dog's ass. You know, like that. that <laughs> <laughs> I've never watched Bird Notice, but now I'm going to start. Yeah, now. <laughs> 
me more. <laughs> that was, you know, and he was like angry that he had to inform you of these things. He was always he was always pissed off. He sounded like in his his voiceover. So burn notice is another one. Got got really moody. Um, you know, I don't know. I, Covert Affairs got moody. Warehouse 13 got moody. You know, like... Uh, Warehouse 13 got moody? Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, actually, you know, here's, here's another one uh, that's that sort of topical. Uh, How I Met Your Mother... Which is rapidly reaching the sort of the the, the sort of uh, the, the zero hour, um, where the mother shall be met, um, <laughs> is definitely like you know it, it started. It, it's it is a very funny show, and it continues to be a very funny show. Um, but it also, and 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 to be fair, I think from the beginning it sort of worn its heart on its sleeve to some extent. But the, the number of moping episodes of that show has gone up exponentially. And perhaps you could just say, like, well, it's a show about a guy who's looking for true love. And it's very – it's you know, when, when he starts out in his early 20s, it's a, it's a different show than, like, you know, now it's literally nine years later. And he's been looking for true love for nine straight seasons and some degree of sort of, like – I'm feeling a little depressed about my way, uh, the way my life is going is, is sort of baked into the cake there. Um, that being said, it definitely, it, it, it definitely jerks at the tears a little more than you would expect from like a sort of, you know, a, a, a kind of a ridiculous, um, you know, little, little bit of farcical uh, Parker Lewis can't lose style uh, comedy. So, but so, but community. To go back to what we were talking about before, community. Um, no, community. Sorry, how I met your mother has a convention that puts it in the same department as True Detective, wherein it's being narrated, right? Well, sort of narrated. Like there's a there's a character who is in the sort of later time frame who is describing events that are happening in the early time frame. And then as the show goes on and the early time frame kind of approaches the current time frame, things change. Right, and they recontextualize what the character was saying about the early time frame. Right, and what I mean in terms of this for How I Met Your Mother is that you know, if the sh- when the show starts and it's all lighthearted, and you're getting narration from Bob Saget about it being all lighthearted, all of the sad things that then subsequently happen have retroactively happened to the Bob Saget who was telling the story of the first episode. Right, like, and, and is, to the extent that this is like a betrayal or an abuse or a reversal. I mean, for those of you who've kept up religiously with that show, and I only watch it occasionally, like, do you feel? Does it feel like the Bob Saget narrator, who's been narrating this whole thing, can absorb and accommodate and sort of assimilate this dark turn that the show is taking, and still and still have this show kind of hang together in some way? Well, the, the show handles that pretty explicitly with him basically saying well it's all worth it because it's leading to me meeting the mother like that <clears throat> that's the the how i met your mother of the title is like kind of redeems everything bad that happens in the meantime at least within the the universe of the show unless meeting the mother be and becomes some horrible dark twist that's really right. like that's well, a real what and, and, no i mean and, and this is a legit fear because there there is there is a theory that has been floating around for years that has sort of been um Resurfacing now that the show is, I think, four episodes from the finish, which is that the mother is is dead in the present day, and that the story is being told, and and that the final reveal will be like, and like you know, I'm telling you this because I want you to understand how important your mother was to me. Now let's go to the funeral, kids. <laughs> um, I've never really bought this just because it seems like a little. At the end of the day, How I Met Your Mother is still a comedy. I don't think I feel like that would be a little bit of a punch in the gut for the people who have stuck with it for nine seasons. And I don't see, like who would be happy with that ending 
and I don't know if this is like an argument for for, for why it won't happen, but it kind of is to me. It's sort of that like like who who wants that? Well, that if nobody raised... wants it. Then like you know then then why would they do it? Well, that's yeah, and, the thi- oh go ahead. And they, well, listen, they also have a strong stake in like not sticking it to the audience at the end of this show because they're spinning it off to a How I Met Your Father show next next season. Which it's is not related, new- by the way. It's not, right. it's not the, the, the same character. It's not uh, similar characters. It's just the, the same premise. Right, but it's the same franchise. And so if people are like really pissed off because, oh my God, you guys have been jerking us around for eight or nine seasons, I don't think that would do much for uh, the ratings of the, the next one. So I, I'd, be, I'd be surprised if that theory ends up ends up working out so i I think though that this tracks back to the nick pizzolato uh, quote right because when you said who would want this right so but but what is who is a person who demands a thing and expects a thing to be repeated and goes to the links of ensuring that it is repeated despite not wanting it who is that person but an abuse victim Right, like that's what abuse does to people. It, it, right, you get abused and you experience this trauma. Right, and then you you oftentimes you expect this trauma to recur. Right, you expect it to keep happening to you. You get upset when things happen in ways that you don't understand or expect. Like this, you you watch a happy situation and then expect the sort of abuse that was visited upon you to recur. Right, so what I'm saying basically is that when, not if, but when the mother is shredded by sniper fire, right, the minute in the final that, episode, in the final episode, <laughs> she shows up pregnant with someone else his children and is shredded by sniper fire and ted has to dig the children out of her uterus with his hands <laughs> i'm telling you that the finger on the trigger of that gun is on jj abrams smoking hand as he, as he abused everyone with loss so that they demand that this happens because it's not okay anymore for any show to have a good ending or not even an end, a good ending but an ending that matches up with the premise of the show well, that, it has to twist it just, i don't know i repeat that to, to borrow a phrase from you I feel like this is an exercise in question begging, right? Because what what is a good ending? You know, what is it to die well, Pete Fens? <laughs> you know what? There's a there's a movie that was made that's on that very specific subject, and it has a lot of abdominal muscles in it. Perhaps you'd like to watch it on Blu-ray. Like they even came out with a sequel that no one saw. No, a lot of people saw that sequel, which is astounding. Um, what I'm saying, Matt, is that it's not madness; it's Sparta. <laughs> <laughs> that's that we live in a television that we that we think we live in television Persia where we get all the riches and all of the bless and all of the splendor and the elephants and the floaty parades and like the golden king with the nose ring but really we live in television Sparta where people get kicked in cisterns that are full of dead goats because they discovered animal husbandry before they covered the cistern which is not the right way to go about your tech. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think we need a I think we need an account of what what a good ending is. I mean, is there one kind of good ending, or does each does each show uh, does each show sort of rewrite the playbook for what a good ending is in the case of this particular show, or are there kinds of shows? Are there are the shows clustered together, and and a particular kind of show has a particular kind of good ending for that show? I mean, what would be a good ending? Uh, what what was uh, a good ending for Law and Order? Right, is probably a different than what a good ending would have been for Lost. That's probably different than what a good ending was for The Shield or for Breaking Bad or something like that. You know. Yeah, I mean Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad's ending is interesting, and again, I won't I won't spoil it. But but Breaking Bad's ending was interesting in that um, 
Sorry, I had to ride the mute for my cough. In that there was there was Norm Macdonald in particular advanced the theory, the speculation that the last episode of Breaking Bad is a dream uh, of some kind that can't have actually happened to the characters because the events that take place are too perfect and surreal and and are too uh, they turn out too well. And because a lot of people were expecting things to turn out very poorly. And he kind of picks a point in the story and he says, that's when the story actually ended. And from here on out, it's all a dream. And that's just what Norm MacDonald is saying. That's not what is actually happening necessarily on screen. But it raises the meta-textual question of what an ending is. And again, without any spoilers, I felt that the ending of Breaking Bad was very meta-textually uh, self-aware as an ending. It was a, it was a writing of an ending. It's like stories end like this. Right, like, like, and and this is the kind of story that has an ending that is like this, uh, and and it was a play on other endings, and it was a play on the music that was inspiring the particular episode. Uh-huh. But I guess you can go back and read our watch our Breaking Bad episode recap to get the if you want, yeah, scoop. if you want to talk about that. But isn't that? I mean, like, that's that's an interesting case. I mean, aren't you aren't you always aren't you always doing that? Like, aren't you always making a case for what an ending is or ought to be, and uh, and why why this is a good one? Like, no one writes a story because. No one just sets out to write a story and thinks, "Hey, like, hey, this is a bad story, guys." I mean, maybe Lost, but like, oh, guys, guys, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna write a bad story that people are gonna hate. You know, I'm gonna make a TV show that will be reviled on the internet. Um, no, right? No one wakes up in the morning and gets excited about doing this. I don't know, maybe. maybe uh... <laughs> Some men just like to watch the world burn. <laughs> yeah, but Chuck Lorre is a completely different, completely yeah. different topic. Than, well, than okay, but he, he, that is, but that also you could. I think that that's a matter of degrees. I think that metatextual self awareness is something that can happen in degrees. But but even to step back, what are some other templates? Right, like maybe ending the show with merely a very good episode of the show, if it's like a highly episodic episode, right, would be kind of nice. Ending a show with a really special guest star. Right? Right is a way of doing it. Like in the last episode, if the last episode of MythBusters had Stephen Hawking on it, or something, right? Or like, or like, I guess the way things are going these days, Neil deGrasse Tyson is like the anointed saint of that particular religion, uh, and like he came on and they 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 busted like a myth of the some vast importance. Um, I don't know. Or uh, gosh, if the last episode of the NFL came on and they just played a really good football game, and that was like the way it ended was with a great football game, and they didn't have to do the football game show anymore. They blew it that um, one this this season. <laughs> that's true. The season finale of the NFL was the worst season finale we've seen all year. It was terrible. Everybody was disappointed. Um, but right oh, what, Matt, you asked what like another template that I mean there is the kind of the opposite where the ending is deliberately. Uh, they deliberately open to interpretation. Like here, I'm thinking uh, of uh, Inception as kind of the or example of, you know, the the question whether or not the top falls down. The there is no answer. Like the, the point is that you don't know. <laughs> Um, and it's deliberately open for discussion and speculation. Right. Sure, but that's a different. I mean, th- there's no basis. You know what I mean? There's no basis for that kind of uh there's no basis for that conversation right like if if you and I were on opposite sides of that debate what could we possibly use as evidence you know <laughs> well, uh, I mean, well the, the internet has the answer to that question <laughs> screen grabs and yeah well the tv example is the sopranos right which which ends in a in a vast conversation starter uh, the first question of which is, did you not pay the cable bill? Uh, and then, <laughs> <laughs> you, 
You jerk. I can never trust you again after you slept with my sister. Jesus Christ. Um, no, no. So, it, escalated it escalated just like that mother getting taken out by those snipers. But, um, <laughs> things do escalate. That was, dark. that was dark. That was <laughs> Look, wow. I was making a pretty absurd point. Let and me I tell you something. If it happens, you heard it here first. <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, but the Sopran- but with the Sopranos, I think what it reveals upon further discussion is that it isn't a question of one way or the other. It's a it's a question of the both, right? The both coexist, and and what does that say about the rest of the story that the both coexist? But that's not a way of thinking that a lot of people are are willing to tolerate, right? Like, that, and I think that's a lot of what this the anger on the internet and like the the energy on the internet behind this is about. Like the in the unwillingness to tolerate ambiguity, and like the which is also the sort of the the urge to resolution. That's sort of like we're all on like the leading tone of the scale, and we just want to hit that root, right? Like we all want to hit that root, and that's such a satisfying feeling to be the one who gets to hit that not, hit that key and make that tone resound, metaphorically speaking. I don't know. What we, are we some other? In- I mean, what are some other good endings? You know, I I think of like the Shield as being the archetypal good ending of a of a TV series where I felt like satisfied. Um, the Shield is the archetypical good ending of a TV series as discussed on an overthinking it property. Like that is the one we count we look to as the good ending because we've said it's the best ending like a whole bunch of times. But it was a good ending. Cheers had a good ending when he walks out of the bar and he shuts the lights out. That was a good. Friday, Go ahead. Friday Night Lights had a good ending. Did they turn the lights off? Was I mean, Friday Night Lights. <laughs> At least I like. It's the same as Cheers, where he's just like, <laughs> yeah. Except they had one of those breakers. It looks like a you know, a giant cartoon electrical switch that goes down. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember what this, what the finale. One of the interesting shows in terms of ending that I watched recently that I've talked about in the podcast a little is Blue Mountain State, which was notable in that it was a football show that never showed a football game uh, because they didn't have any budget to show like the actual football games. So like the season would lead up to a big bowl game and then it would start at like the end at the like end of the season finale. And they'd be like, no, we'll go play the football game. And it, the show would be over. Um, and they had a really cool ending in that they, they played the last game. They got like, they like cleared out a cornfield and made a football field out of it and had like a pure football game. Cause that way they'd have to pay like a thousand extras or pay to use like a stadium. Yeah. Uh, so it was a necessity, but it was also sort of like cool that they did the one thing that they'd never done. That's something that you, you can do in the finale is you do the one thing you've never done. Like Mulder and Scully can kiss. X-Files had a bad ending. Right? Like you got um, the reintrodu- the introduction of all the Christian stuff in the X Files finale, I think, was kind of unfortunate because it hadn't really been part of what the show was about up until that point, and so it sort of felt peripheral, like ortho- or- or- orthogonal to what was happening. I don't know. Do you remember that ending, Matt? Or Matt? Uh, it was a while ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I guess, and even then, it's like, well, that's a tough question. There's you- also there's also a meta game. What my uh, what my UCB improv teacher uh, once called a, a meta game. Um, yes. Your UCB improv teacher who probably played magic cards and where they got the game name of the game. <laughs> Continue. Uh, we were doing a, a practice scene, and, and in this scene, I, I established a pattern, and people people just kept tagging in to make me come up with ever more outlandish variations on this pattern that I had established um, because it involved like coming up with a, a little bit of plot and coming up with a story and an explanation for something. And then someone came in and like made, the, made it harder for me. And then someone came in 
again and made it made it harder for me again and again and again. And he said, okay, so there was a game here, but there was also a meta game, which is that we as an audience are watching an improv troupe really stick it to one of their members, you know, to really like make somewhat really, you know, put someone in a tough spot where they have to come up with uh, with a lot of material. And we're pimping our friend into coming up with ever more outlandish, um, ever more outlandish things like this. And there also is like a meta game um, TV TV series where like and the one I'm thinking of at the end uh, at the end of the show is Law and Order right where Sam Waterston finally uh, who 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 is pretty restrained honestly I, eyebrows accepted um, is pretty restrained all things considered uh, throughout like finally gets to have like a big scenery chewing monologue where he sort of shouts at someone for their for being morally reprehensible right and we've been we've been waiting for that I think right like we've been waiting for for uh for him to have his al pacino at the end of devil's advocate moment or sort of wishing wishing that he could do it wishing that he weren't so constrained so circumscribed by by his job and his character's sense of duty and and so on that he couldn't cut loose um and give us the the sort of the proxy self-righteousness that we are also hungry for as consumers of of popular <laughs> culture uh right and that that is a sort of that is a sort of uh what well, I would call it sort of the meta the the meta game of the TV show that like there's something that we want to see that's been withheld from us or there's something that we want to see that actually doesn't have to do with the characters or the plot the kind of the di- diegetic world um of the plot and the characters and they're going to give it to us fi- finally right like and uh, which is which is related but distinct from like do the one thing you've never done before yeah yeah i mean the, the idea that uh, that you know this idea of of, the, of watching television as a meta game uh is a <laughs> it's 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 a rosier version of uh of interpretation of the experience of television watching than what pete was describing earlier that someone is the victim of abuse right that's like that's why they're <laughs> watching television um i, I guess i'm all that is to say that i'm glad that we have these two different uh ways of looking at things because there's some truth i think in in both but oh god forbid like oh i, I certainly did feel like um the victim of a, a sort of abuse when slogging through that first season of Revolution. Man, that was, uh, those, are some, those are some dark times. Let's well, talk think, go back there. It, one of the things it boils down to is that people are pattern-finding machines, and we just are so desirous of seeking out and discovering the patterns around us. And our relationship, in particular television, more than movies, more than books, is a medium that approaches our sense for pattern because it's about habitual viewing it's about what we want to watch at the same time on the same day of the week and it's about presenting us with characters that we relate to um in that in that way that we become accustomed to them we become you know accustomed to that pattern and so breaking patterns and making patterns and frustrating patterns and creating patterns is a big part of you know, the game of television you know, related to the game of the scene that Matt is talking about in long-form improv theory it is, is a game of playing with the patterns that people create for themselves in their life in re- relationship to your show. And the abuse – and abuse is another kind of pattern, and it's a kind of pattern that people can fall into – and so if television is like abuse, then it is a way that it can fulfill its purpose as a pattern, as, as, like a, as, a, as an anchor for pattern makers. 
but you know it's not the kind of pattern that we want to be have the the pattern maker making and it's probably too dire of a damnation um it's just interesting you know there's degrees right there's there's tons of degrees of ways in which getting caught into a cycle can be a good or a bad thing an addiction a habit right like are all habits bad or all addictions bad are we are we looking at from the Battlestar galactica slash mormon perspective of addictions being something that subtracts from our selfness or our commitment to some sort of a higher order of some kind or is a habit or addiction you know something that can be connected to ritual and goodness i mean this is not a closed question um at least not as far as i know well there's not i mean and the answer the answer to it is yes Right. Like, you know, there, there it is. It's it's both things. I think that I think that that what you say is all true as far as it goes. But I want to add another dimension and it's the dimension of the marketplace. Right. Because at the moment, it's a very crowded marketplace with sort of pattern making, you know, and pattern suggesting machines, which is what I suppose dramatic narratives are or serial narratives are uh, each each to a certain extent. Right. Like, um especially mystery, mystery narratives. Um, the, uh, the television landscape is, is so crowded that you do things just to set yourself apart in the marketplace. Right. Uh, and those things might be at odds with the imperatives of good, good storytelling, good pattern suggesting, good pattern making, right? Um, but the, they're necessary, or the, it, it's supposed that they're necessary uh, to get attention. Because who wants another competently executed drama? Well, I suppose the viewers of True Detective, right? Like, it's so rare, I guess, that we just get a competently executed drama that is not trying to, you know, I don't know, uh, do do anything else. Um, right. I, I suppose it's what? It's it's The Good Wife. Right. And uh, and, and Men in Trees. Was that a show like that? I don't know. My mom liked that show. Men in Trees. And it was pretty straightforward. I think it was dudes. I don't think they were literally in trees. I think they just lived in the, a woody area. I think but sometimes I think, they were in trees. Like literally, they were like in. Were they like forestry? I think, I think that's the deals that yeah, they they were in forestry. Oh well, that's even more direct. Yay, Anne Hesh for keeping America's promise. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I don't know, and you get like Kurt Sutter uh, being uh, from Sense of Anarchy, right? Like uh, being a real jerk about the Good Wife on his his Twitter uh, because it's it's you know middlebrow it's middlebrow television. But like, wait, wait, wait! The star of Pacific Rim was was like <laughs> mad at a TV show for not being highbrow enough. No, 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 no! no. The, no. the creator of Sons of Anarchy. Oh, not the star of Sons of Anarchy. Yeah, the creator yeah. of Sons of Anarchy. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm he's sorry. he uh, who is uh, who was a writer on the shield also uh right, for right, what right. it's worth so so you know got got nothing but respect but you know i don't know he's hating on my middle brow dramas and i uh and and i don't take kindly to that right like um there there's something to be said for for like a competently a competently executed uh a competently executed active storytelling right um, I'm not sure we're going to answer this question tonight. Yeah, there's something to be said about it, but we're not going to say it at the time. <laughs> All right. Well, if you want to uh, add to the conversation about, do you feel like a victim of abuse? <laughs> Jesus, trigger warning. Um, oh, that's, yeah. When the mother gets shot by the snipers. So there's a big trigger warning. Jeez. Yeah, because J.J. Oh, Abrams pulled the trigger. Pulled the trigger. 
Um, not you know, I don't know. This podcast is headed. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Are you angry at us for any number of things that you might justifiably be angry at us for uh, about this podcast? If so, uh, take us to task in the comments or by calling the number that nobody calls, which is 203-285-6401, or by um, emailing the email that nobody emails, which is uh, com. You can call or text that number or email your comments. You can always leave a comment on the show notes uh, for this episode. And I mean, some things that we might talk about include, like, are there many kinds of good endings for uh, TV shows? Does it depend on the degree of serialization in the narrative of that TV show? Um, what are some particularly good endings? What are some particularly bad endings? Can we uh, repost that graphic of the, uh, what is it called, the Westfall hypothesis about how all of television is uh, in the mind of this uh, this boy on St. Elsewhere uh, looking into the snow globe. Spoiler alert. <laughs> right? um, we'll be back with more theorizing about pulp culture uh, next week. Until then, you can visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular oh, someone, I heard that intake of breath. Someone is getting ready uh, for the for the tagline, yeah, this is going to be. Wait, is there going to be a big twist? Is this episode going to end in some entirely unexpected way that will totally blow our minds and change everything we ever thought about podcasting? 